The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. I had a podcast called The Politics of Survival with RT, and now I'm kind of winging it and talking to another colleague of mine from RT um, and also an activist in America. And we um, are going to have a conversation a little bit about censorship. So thank you to the audience who's joining me. And, uh, you know, without further ado, I'd like to introduce someone who's been a longtime activist in anti-war and other um, issues that he can talk about and was a former correspondent with RT, Caleb Maupin. Caleb, thank you so much. It means a lot that you came on. Thank you. Sure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So, okay. So we're, yesterday I got the news, my podcast was being shelved. What can you share with my listeners that's happening in your world? Well, uh, RT America, uh, the company that I've worked for for the past six years, uh, has closed down. Um, we all received a layoff letter. Uh, I cleared out my desk. We got our personal belongings, and the company is ceasing production and uh, ceasing operations. Uh, and that was quite a blow. A lot of people were very, very upset and and crying and and shocked. It came very, very suddenly. Um, and, uh, we understand this is related to bank transfers and the new sanctions that have come through. Uh, and, uh, it's related to some other things like threats, uh, that we've gotten as well as, you know, uh, being short staffed. A lot of people have been kind of intimidated by the social media, uh, hysteria against RT and all things Russian lately. Um, so uh, I don't know what comes next. Um, you know, but I do know that RT America, my employer, has shut down. Um, so, you know, I'm in a bit of a state of shock and I'm waiting to see how this all plays out. Um, you know, I've, I've got a wife, I've got a family and uh, we're all quite upset by this. Um, but yeah. uh, there you go. That's that's kind of my situation. I'm trying to focus on the positive and focus on just doing what I do best, which is getting the truth out there. Um, so there you go. Now, um, the censorship has extended. Lee Camp's show, of course, was canceled. His um, his uh, podcast was pulled off Spotify. Mine was pulled off Spotify. Caitlin Johnstone did a thing. This happened right before the closure of RT America. Um, I'm I've gotten threats, although I've gotten threats, Caleb, for so many years. I just like doesn't mean anything to me anymore. It just amped up a little bit because there's more troll farms, but you know, they're threatening us with being traitors and that, you know, the electric chair pictures and, you know, and unfortunately some of them are journalists. Um, like for instance, a senior CNN reporter said I should be investigated for treason. And, you know, that's, it's, it's a bit much. It's the Russophobia is just on high DEFCON one, I would say. Um, what, are you experiencing and are you experiencing something different? And, you know, I have to be honest with you. I just feel like it's a tactic and I'm not buying into it. I just, I, it's mostly by troll farms. So I'm just pushing through. How, how are you doing? Exactly. And you can tell it's coming from troll farms. I really, mm -hmm. really doubt that in the middle of a war, when the people yeah. of Ukraine are having bombs going off and trying to get mm -hmm. to humanitarian corridors for safety, a lot of them are just saying, well, you know what? Let's put this on hold. Let's run to our laptops and tweet at some guy in another language, English, uh, about how mad we are that he works at RT. Yeah. I really doubt that. And I have a feeling that a lot of money has been uh, has been saved up and all the troll farms and that there's a lot of troll farms in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia and in Africa and places like that. And a lot of neoliberal think tanks have told all these forces to, you know, go get them all out campaign of intimidation. 
Um, and that, that, look, this is the new horizon of the information war. Um, and this is how these things work. And uh, they are whipping up hysteria uh, against Russia and, you know, trying to blame uh, Russia for this whole situation, trying to mobilize the U.S. public to hate Russians. Um, and we need to just uh, we need to just recognize what's going on and hold the line uh, and say, look, we are going to speak up for truth, uh, even if it's unpopular. Um, we are going to challenge the status quo. We have a right to do that. Uh, we have a right to work for companies based in other countries. Um, and, you know, it just keeps some perspective. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of addicted to social media right now, which is not good. I'm trying to think about how I can detox. It's just you get on there. You, I'm getting all my tweets are, are doing very well. And I've gained like, yeah. you know, three, four hundred thousand, you know, four, three to four thousand followers in the last uh, in the last week alone. So, you know, it's good for my social media. My videos are getting a lot more views. I'm getting uh, when I when it was announced that my employers at RT America were closing the company down. I got a lot of support. So many people, people I hadn't heard from in years reaching out to me and and offering their support. And I do appreciate that. Um, you know, but at the same time, you know, a lot of hate is coming in and, you know, we really don't know, you know, I mean, there are, there are RT employees, uh, you know, uh, who have had their, the, the home address of their relatives posted on social media, yes. uh, that is going on. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of things are happening. Um, on the one hand, I, I feel like in a way we can almost view this as an opportunity and I hate to sound, you know, insensitive when I say that, but at the end of the day, you know, being an anti-imperialist, uh, means you have to go against the crowd. Yeah. I will never forget one of the stories I always tell people is I was protesting. I was protesting. I was an Occupy Wall Street activist and we were protesting. Um, it was against a company that was using sweatshop labor in Bangladesh. And mm -hmm. we were protesting at this clothing store in, in Manhattan. And we were like being provocative. We were going into the store and making some noise. And of course, the security guards want to kick you out of the store. Right. right. And so, um, you know, we're in the store and this security guard walks up to me and is you know, going to kick me out of the store for standing there with my sign with the other protesters. And then in that moment, um, I, you know, I argued with her a little bit and then I realized, oh, I can just pretend she's not there, you know? And so I just imagined that she wasn't there. And the security guard was yelling at me, get out of this store. Who do you think? And I'm just standing there. And I just completely looked straight past her like she wasn't there. And then I realized right. she, she couldn't do anything. She's not a cop, right? A cop can cuff you right. and arrest, you, but she's a security guard. She can't really do anything. So I just stood yeah. there and she was completely powerless. And it was it was like, uh, I think there's isn't there some vampire movie where the vampire is very powerful at the beginning. And then at the end, he's like using some words and he has no power. And that's what a lot of these people are, is they're just words. And if you pretend they're not there, uh, they go away. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And then the other that's thing. Sweet. Yeah. And they're openly oh. discussing how they're doing the censorship right now. And they've admitted. And this is very yeah. interesting. I mean, they're really thinking, how can we shut down Jimmy Dore? How can we shut down, you know, critics? And they're saying things like, we don't want to make martyrs right now, which is well, very you know what the hill, the hill, um, as you know, the political um thing got shut down from faith from YouTube for a week. They got banned because of Kim Iverson. They shared a clip of Donald Trump, and that's all it took. So they're banned from YouTube for a week. Mm. And you know, I think what's happened with the censorship is the door's been opened. And what I've been saying to the people that you can agree or disagree with my politics, but you know what, you're next, because if this is happening to us, it's going to happen to you. And, you know, I wanted to go back, though, about the inflammatory Russophobia stuff, because yesterday something happened that was really jarring in my eyes. And that was Senator Lindsey Graham made a specific threat against a sitting president in a sovereign nation with nuclear arms that we're trying to, we should be diplomatically reaching out some en to. 
and he threatened the life of Vladimir Putin. Did you, I mean, what is your opinion of, I mean, that was so reckless and so wrong. And can you imagine if any Russian official did that to Biden? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, it's horrendous um, and it's completely unacceptable. Unfortunately, I mean, there's a long pattern of the U.S. government, right? I mean, I think they tried to assassinate Fidel Castro uh, how many times? 360, 380, perhaps. Uh, You know, um, uh, I remember on national television uh, back in the early 2000s, I think Pat Robertson called for the assassination of Hugo Chavez. Um, you know, and said on, on national TV, he said, we ought to just go ahead and assassinate him, you know? And so, you know, unfortunately there are, you know, there's a history of us officials making claims like this, but yes, of course, if Russia's president were to make statements like that about our president, it would be the end of the world. It would be, we'd never hear the end of it. And it shows how biased American media is the double standards. Um, and, uh, it also shows, you know, the, the Russian president, that guy knows what he's doing. All right. I mean, they're portraying him now. I mean, it seems like they're trying to wage some kind of weird psychological operation. Yeah, against Russia. two weird conflicting narratives. One is that he's calculating and knows exactly what he's doing. And one is that he's a madman. And, you know, Caleb, you mentioned in one of your one of your articles that I've read, you know, I've read a lot of your work. You you met him. You you know him. So can you describe for people that how you know, kind of ridiculous this is from your experience and and your experience of him. Well, I've been in the same room with him twice. I mean, we haven't personally interacted, but there were two occasions where I was in a room full of people that that had the opportunity to be quite close to him and such. Um, You know, I was at the Valdi Discussion Club, which uh, is a think tank in Russia, and I was able to attend some of their sessions. And and I was also, I was at the World Festival of Youth and Students, and I was invited to a special reception where a lot of the very high achieving Russian young people were able to present him like with their science projects, basically, and he was able to kind of critique them. Um, and I will say, you know, um, that guy doesn't, I mean, he, he does not miss a word. He is one of the smoothest guys ever. Like he never, there's not a stutter. Uh, there is not an um, there's not a but, uh, there's not an er. I mean, that guy, he means what he says and he says what he means. And he is very smooth. I'll tell you that much. Um, he's very clever. Um, and that he's not hes not very bombastic with his emotions. He's a very calm guy. Uh, very, very, very calm guy. I mean, I have never seen anyone with that, that level of, I mean, discipline in their emotions, right? I know that he studied martial arts judo and they really emphasize that um and that he has kind of emphasized you know some of his history you know some of his training with you know with his background in the security services and stuff he's a very very clear-headed cool cool-headed individual he does have a sense of humor but it's not like a like a loud bombastic sense of humor it's more of a subtle it's kind of that subtle russian humor uh you know that's that's what he's he's good at and he's a very intelligent man and people don't give him credit for this i mean if you look into who he actually is there's so much so much silliness. No one wants to talk about why is he president and why is he so popular? He wrote his PhD academic dissertation about how to fix Russia's economy. And it was, he argued the way to fix Russia's economy was by using oil and gas and transitioning Russia to being an oil and natural gas exporting country. And he Mm -hmm. wrote this dissertation and he talked, he quoted Adam Smith, and he quoted uh, you know all kinds of you know famous economists, and he developed an economic model of using energy exports to fund the rebirth of the Russian economy, um, right. and he got got elected president. I mean, in the middle of kind of a national emergency crisis with terrorism in Chechnya, and then he implemented it. And he wasn't able to do it immediately, right? That's a big economic change to completely change the economy of a country. But he basically started moving toward making Gazprom and Rosneft, these two state-run energy companies, the center of the Russian economy. 
and then using the money that came into the government by selling oil and gas on the international markets to reindustrialize the country and rebuild their steel industry. Now he's just rebuilt their farming sector. They're having the biggest harvests. That Agriculture. You- mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a very mm-hmm. smart guy and he knows economics very well. Uh, he comes, you know, he, he was a communist when he was with the KGB and all of that. And then the fall of the Soviet Union, he obviously, you know, you know, and, and rediscovered his Russian Orthodox faith. And, you know, he obviously at this point is not a Marxist in any sense, but he knows Marxist economics. You can bet he knows it like the back of his hand. He also mm-hmm. knows uh, the the economics of China. He knows the economics uh, of of you know our our founders here in the United States, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, you know he knows Friedrich List, uh, the German economist who was a critic of free trade, and he basically argues that the state does have an obligation to improve living conditions for the population. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't think that here in the West. We think the government is the best that governs least. And uh, you know right now our roads are crumbling. Uh, we have the worst educational system in the industrialized Western world. Uh, you know, our government is basically in complete dereliction of duty. The country is falling apart and the government says, well, you're on your own. Well, in Russia, they have a different perspective. And, you know, in that meeting where I was with him, where he was talking with these students who were kind of presenting him with their science projects, right? Mm-hmm. They were, I, I thought it was very interesting because it was not the kind of interaction, like I imagine, like what if Barack Obama were meeting with like some high achieving high school kids and talking about their science yeah. project? It would be completely different. It would be, oh, I love kids and study and this and that. It wasn't like that. He actually was like giving bits of wisdom to these kids. I remember like, um, you know, he was going over the projects and how he liked them. And then he pointed out, he said, you know, this one girl, her project was about burning plants as a source of energy. And he said, this is a very very good project. He said, but when you're presenting things, you also have to remember who the audience is, not just uh, how good your idea is. And he says, for example, you're presenting this to me. And I am the head of a country whose main export is oil and gas. So if I hear about (laughs) something that would make oil and gas go out of business, I might not be too interested. And everyone kind of laughed and and smiled. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a witty remark to make, but he was also kind of giving an insight. And and the way the the audience kind of listens to him when he talks, and it's not the same kind of leadership we have over here, right? It's it's really not the same thing. And if you want to stereotype it as totalitarianism and all that, that, you're missing the point completely. This is real leadership. You know, my grandparents on both sides were Republicans, but they loved FDR. When they talked about Mm -hmm. FDR, he wasn't a Republican. He was the president. And he got right. them through World War II, and he took care of us during the Great Depression, and they, they yeah. loved Roosevelt, right? And I don't right. think since Roosevelt have we ever had a leader that was that loved. I mean, Kennedy was kind of close, but not really. I think, mm-hmm. you know, but, but FDR was, really was America's mm-hmm. president, you know? And that's, mm-hmm. that's what Putin is for Russia. Yeah, and um, as we move forward, so, so these, um, well, you know, and I had written about this in some of my op-eds for RT about uh, the playbook that the the government weaponizes the Western media and they use the playbook of you vilify, you marginalize, you dehumanize whoever the enemy is so that even if they might be right on certain points, you don't like them. So one thing I've been noticing is this focus on calling Vladimir Putin Hitler. And my take on this is because our government is actually funding Nazis in Ukraine, neo-Nazis, and it's to deflect, it's again, switch and bait, to deflect from what they're actually doing, actual neo-Nazis. And I found it so offensive because Vladimir Putin's knowing his background, his um, parents, his father fought in World War II, his mother um, almost died in the fall of Leningrad, his his brother died. I mean, he he fought Nazis. He has very strong feelings about it and discusses it quite often. So 
do you feel like that's just another thing the West is doing to just dig in and just, you know, try to vilify? Well, it, it reflects, you know, the, the thinking of the leaders of the United States and the way they're talking in Ivy League schools on a number of levels. I mean, OK, so first things first, it's just an insult, right? The Russians right. are very proud of their role in the Second World War and the defeat of Nazism. Mm -hmm. So comparing right. one of, you know, I mean, the Nazis killed 27 million people in the Soviet Union. So it's just psychological warfare on that front. But also yeah. you have to remember, OK, so we have, you know, in, in at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, prevailing in the United States among people studying foreign policy, you had a lot of people that were studying what they called Sovietology or Kremlinology, and that was dominated by neoconservatism. And you had Irving Kristol and Leo Strauss, and they were the two big giant intellectuals of Sovietology and Kremlinology, and they were the, the founders of neoconservatism. And a big part of neoconservatism is equating all critics of liberal capitalism and the free market with Nazis, right? And all populism is Nazism. Leo Strauss was a philosophy professor and his, his big book is called Persecution and the Art of Writing. And he basically argues that there are these really smart people throughout history, Plato, Socrates, Immanuel Kant, and they're always being persecuted by the inferior rabble, the little people. And they're always going around persecuting them. So they have to write in code and all of that. And that, that mm -hmm. average people are these dangerous, ignorant, you know, rabble that get in the way of the great intellectuals, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have to manage society to make sure the, the, the rabble, the inferior ones never get together and start making demands, because if they do, that's the same as Hitler. Communism is the same as fascism, and it's all when the, the average people start getting together and making their demands. And so the job of the intellectuals is to kind of, you know, work with the government to create a smokescreen to kind of mm -hmm. manipulate the inferior ones. The, 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 you know, they kind of view average people as like little children who, you know, the world events are, are, are too complicated for us to understand. And this, the smarter people okay. that to go to the Ivy League schools, their job is to just give us this very black and white view of the world and yeah. manipulate it in order to make sure that the bad, you know, countries where the rabble are out of control and you get a Putin or a Xi or a Fidel Castro, okay. uh, that they get beaten back. And that's the neocon perspective. It's very elitist. Um, and you can see it like blatantly right now. Leo Strauss, his favorite TV program was Gunsmoke. He loved Gunsmoke. The Cowboys. Oh, yes, and, yes. And, and yeah. people joked about how how Gunsmoke, the good guy, always wore a white hat and he was all good, had no flaws. The bad guy always wore a black hat and he was always completely bad, no redeeming qualities. That's right. the way they're portraying the situation. And Leo Strauss said that's how Americans should come to view foreign policy, and that's what we're getting with this whole Ukraine crisis. And so there you go. Well, so here we are with the Ukraine crisis. So um, there is a school of thought that is not getting heard. And I was wondering if you could address it, that um, actually President Putin of Russia, of the Russian Federation, may have averted a civil war or a massacre in Donbass by going in. You're not hearing that narrative in the West. So can you talk a little bit and educate our listeners about what that means and, and why we're not hearing it? Well, yes. And it, it is deeply frustrating to me because I follow very closely what the Russian government is actually saying, which right. in the middle of a war is kind of important. You know, would think, yeah, you would think CNN would be paying attention to this that, you know, mm -hmm. but, but nobody except for RT seems to be paying attention to what the Russian government is actually saying. So about a month ago, Joe Biden and the United States and Britain all announced Russia is preparing to invade Ukraine. And I, I watched these press conferences and Nabenzi of the Russian Federation, uh, the Russian foreign ministers, uh, 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 you know, I mean, they, they all got up and they said, no, we're not. We are we're not, not planning to invade yeah. Ukraine. 
we don't know what you're talking about. We're not planning to invade Ukraine. And the United States said, oh, but you're having military exercises in Belarus. And Nabenzia, uh, and, and he got up and, and he said, we have these military exercises every year. And we announced to you that we're doing them just so you don't freak out. And they said, no, 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 Russia's about to invade Ukraine. Russia's like, we're not invading Ukraine. So after the USA just wouldn't let this go. So right. then you'll recall Russia started moving their troops away from the border. They started moving right. troops away from the border. Yeah, yeah. And there's video of it. And Joe Biden said, oh, I'm not sure this is really happening. There's video. I mean, it was not a secret. I mean, and, and you know, the USA has satellites on Russia. You think that any troops move without them knowing about it? You know, they're watching all of this very, very carefully. They started moving their troops away from the border. And then that's when the bombs went off in Lugansk and Donetsk. And then immediately the shelling that the people of Lugansk and Donetsk have been facing for the past eight years, the drone strike, all started escalating. And it looks to me like basically, you know, Biden blames blames Putin for getting Trump elected. And he said, we're going to get into office and we're going to take revenge on Russia. He waited for a year to try and stabilize with the pandemic. And then he basically told the Ukrainian officials, all right, we, you know, go and take back Lugansk and Donetsk, kill those people, slaughter them, go in and just wipe them out. Right. You've killed 14,000 of them so far. They're allies of Putin. They're Putin's puppets. Biden told Zelensky, just let the Azov battalion go in there and wipe these people out. And so this onslaught started coming into Donetsk and, and people in the eastern regions all started piling on buses and, and fleeing for their lives and going to Russia and, and trying to get away. And at that moment, then the following Monday, you know, Putin announced he's recognizing Donetsk and Lugansk, right? For eight years, Russia held off doing that. They wanted recognition eight years ago. And Russia said, no, reintegrate into Ukraine. Follow the Minsk agreement. The Minsk Accords was about reintegrating them back into Ukrainian society. Right. Um, but then, you know, now it's been made clear that's not going to happen. Seven years since the Minsk Accords, that's a long time. So on Eight? Monday, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, on Monday, Putin recognized them. And he said, all right, right, we recognized you. He sent the military in to protect those regions. And then they went on the offensive. And now they're tearing apart that Ukrainian military that's been attacking and murdering people in Lugansk and Donetsk for, for eight years. Uh, they're tearing it apart. And they're, they're saying, look, this military, all this U.S.-made military equipment, all this hardware, all this stuff you know, that you've been piling on our border, threatening to join NATO, we're ripping it apart. And uh, it's awful. And a lot of people are suffering. And I'm not happy that this suffering is happening. But I'm clear about why it's happening. And I think wait, wait, wait. there's a couple of flashpoints that I noticed um, right before it happened. And tell me if I'm right or wrong. One was Zelensky started talking about nuclear weapons on the border of Russia. The second was um, America, the U.S. canceled the summit that was supposed to happen. And they just canceled it. It was a diplomacy. And so and it didn't come from the Russian side. It came from the from the U.S. side. And then a bunch of sanctions went in that same time. So were those do you think those were just sort of part and parcel of the whole thing? Or do you think those were flashpoints? You know, when, when the Soviet Union put missiles in Cuba, it triggered an event called the Cuban Missile Crisis. OK, right. You know, that was a big deal. And there were already missiles in Turkey. And the Soviet mm -hmm. Union said, OK, we're going to put missiles in Cuba. And that almost ended the human race as we know it. Right. There was almost yes. a clear war. So to think that the president of Ukraine, a, a country, you know, the USA overthrew the government in 2014, excuse me, installed like a virulently anti-Russian government. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they're talking about joining NATO. And then to have the president Zelensky get up and say, hey, why not get nukes? Why don't we do that? I mean, to think that that's not a provocation and a threat against Russia, you have to be completely out to lunch. 
not to think that. But that's how U.S. media is portraying it. I've heard U.S. officials say, well, Ukraine is never going to get nuclear weapons. Well, then why did they make that statement? That statement was a threat against Russia. Yeah, um, it was. And, yeah mm-hmm. and then canceling the summit. I'm sure Russia would rather be talking with Biden than mm-hmm. having war right now. But the USA right. didn't want to talk. And then the bombs went off in Lugansk and Donetsk. The shellings escalated. And and yeah, then Russia went on in and it's awful. And my heart goes out to the people in, the, in, in those regions. But this didn't have to happen. And I hope that Russia is able to leave soon. No, I really do, because I think the strategy. Okay, are you, where, where, where are we now? Like, what is the latest that you've heard? Because, you know, the, the news is so uh, it's just it, it's now, especially with RT, not as accessible to the West. We're just getting we're like in an echo chamber in this moment. So can you give our listeners a little view of like what's happening at this moment? And it's you know, we're in the first week of March and all this has happened. So where are we with talks? And I, last I heard there was some, some talks going to happen um, near the border of Poland and then it moved and what's going on. All right. So at, at this point, I believe what the United States is doing is mm-hmm. they're trying to turn this into a prolonged conflict, which is really bad for Russia really bad for Ukraine. And I really hope that Russia can figure out a way to, you know, get the security they need and get out of there as fast as they can. Uh, Because the fact that Zelensky is not seriously negotiating, that's clear. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, he went in and he said, oh, the terms of his negotiation was Russia pull out of Crimea, pull out of the eastern regions. You know, that's not serious. That's not a serious negotiation. Right. Um, You know, that Zelensky is not seriously negotiating and the Ukrainian military has at this point completely collapsed. Most of the fighting is being done by these ultra-nationalist fighting groups that are not accountable mm-hmm. to the Ukrainian government. And on top of that, they're now calling for international volunteers. And this all reminds me of Afghanistan. And we know that Zbigniew ah. Brzezinski talk, talked about the Afghan mm-hmm. trap. And that, that you know the Russian military is very effective, but they, they're effective in terms of they go in, they go out. You know, Georgia, mm-hmm. 2008, Putin did an amazing job in that conflict. Because, you know, Georgia attacked South Ossetia and Russia said, okay, they went into Georgia, they got shit done and then they left. Right. Mm -hmm. But if this turns into, you know, a war that goes on for years and all of that, Russia's ability to, you know, to function as a society is going to get weaker. And I think Russia knows this. I'm not telling I'm not saying anything they don't know. They've studied the history of the Cold War far more than any Americans have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, they know this. But um, but I think that that is the intent. They want to make this the new uh, the new Afghanistan. They want anti-Russian fanatics and anti-communists from all over the world to start going to Ukraine and joining the the Azov Battalion and the fighting groups. And they want to prolong this as much as possible, demoralize Russia. And the sad thing is, if that's their strategy, it really goes to show they don't care about the Ukrainian people, right? Because that would, how many deaths would that result in? How You know, like 3 million Afghans died in the Afghan-Soviet war. Right. I mean, it's like that wouldn't benefit the people of Ukraine in any conceivable way. To well, have when you mentioned Afghanistan, I mean, we took away the aid. And, and by the way, that was stealing. And it's it's going to, you know, the projection um, shows. And I think Claire Daly, the Irish MP, talked about this. One million Afghan children are going to starve as we speak because they can't get aid. We took it and we gave it to 9-11 survivors. And like, I, I just, you know, the decisions that are being made by this administration are really stark regarding foreign policy. And I'll tell you something from my experience, because I worked for Joe Biden, as you know, and was an intern for Leon Panetta and low level, but yet they talk in front of you with their mics off, right? And I was around and I heard with my own ears, and this is right after the fall of the Soviet Union, not too long after. They said Russia will never have a seat at the table. 
they will never allow them to economically rise. Vladimir Putin proved them wrong and his leadership with along with the other people around him. They did bring a middle class to the Russia as you as you brought out the history of it. And then he made a speech in 2007 that said we need to move away from a unipolar world. That was the key. When he said that, I, I mean, I remember that speech very well because I thought it was such an incredible speech for history, but also the reaction from the Americans in the front row. And I thought, uh oh, because he was everyone's darling. He was invited to all the, you know, events and everything. And then all of a sudden he became the villain. And I knew like his, him saying the West, you know, they, that, you know, Russia was rising and he just, they wanted respect economically to participate. They're capitalists. There's no political ideology difference anymore. There's no cold war. Well, you know what happened. The rest is history. So when I was, I remember someone interviewed me in 2020 and they said, well, during that time, didn't we like Russia? And I said, no, there was a hostility underlying. The hostility was to keep the Russian economy from not participating in the marketplace in a competitive way. So what you're seeing now is all this regime change. I'm seeing this online and in the media. They need regime change. That's translation for the U.S. wants to put in a puppet government in Russia, right? And take them off the, the global oil and gas market because America really wants to corner that. Um, so we're in this hawkish moment, right? With the Biden administration, in my opinion, some of the same people that I worked with are still there. Madeleine Albright's people, you know, some of them are retired and some of them are still in the background there. So they still have this Cold War attitude where, okay, to justify $787 billion in our budget, from weapons, we need an enemy. So Russia's their enemy. And, and, you know, you're younger than me and your generation is seeing this, but not lived through that history. What is your thoughts about your generation? Is Amer are, is this generation of Americans going to accept a neo-McCarthyism or do you think there'll be a pushback? Well, I think what's underlying a lot of what you're describing is a particular attitude um, you know, when you talk about the elite of the United States, you know, it's funny, my outlook has generally the way I got into protesting these things. And I was uh, let me just add, I was marching for the people of Donetsk and Lugansk in 2014 before I ever worked at RT, before I ever got a check. I have been an anti-imperialist. I was trained to come at things as a Marxist. I worked for former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark at the Inter International mm -hmm. Action Center. Um, and I looked at things with a Marxist Leninist perspective. But you know, I have learned a lot and I still, you know, frame things in, in Marxist, Marxian terms, but I realize there's a bit more to it. And that among the American elite, there is a certain faction that you can call, you know, I think uh, Carol Quigley, uh, who was the professor of Bill Clinton, uh, who was a, mm -hmm. a, an academic who's widely respected. He talked about the Anglo-American establishment. And there is a wing of the American elite, the old money based in New England uh, that are in with the city of London and you know the London Stock Exchange. And they have a particular worldview. Um, and that worldview is rooted in the idea that uh, basically the, the way the world should be set up is that they should be the middleman in global trade. Uh, they admire the Roman Empire. You know, Mark Zuckerberg says his hero uh, is Caesar Augustus, uh, you know, who, you know, who was the, right. the Romana. Right. And the way the Roman Empire worked is they were the middleman in global trade. They let other people have their country. But if you did business, all roads led to Rome. You couldn't build a road from one end of the empire to another. They were the middleman in global trade. And the world mm -hmm. under the Roman Empire got poorer and Rome continued to enrich itself. Right. That's the model right. that they believe in. 
And that's very much the model that the British imperialists had in the 1800s. They wanted to build the world's biggest navy. If you wanted to trade, you had to go through them. And that's the way their empire worked. Um, and that, that is very much the English model. Uh, whereas mm -hmm. if you look at Russia and you can go before Stalin, before Lenin, before the Bolsheviks, go back to Catherine the Great, you know, the go case. back to Ivan the Terrible. There was a different model, you know, and they were they did have an empire, but their model was quite different. It was like we're going to have joint development. We're going to have a strong central government that brings different nationalities together and we're going to stabilize these regions. You know, and some people talk about Eurasianism versus Atlanticism. I like to say continentalism because I don't think it's inherent to Eurasia, Russia and China. I think it's 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 that when you have a civilization that develops on a land mass versus a civilization that develops on a sea by controlling trade routes, they're going to develop differently. And this is geopolitics. And this is a lot deeper than the classic Marxist-Leninist view of things, which is my primary influence. But but that is the prevailing view. Um, and I think that that's why they, you know, you heard what you heard. They will never let Russia have a seat at the table because right. they are Atlanticists. And a big part of their view is Malthusianism. The idea that there are too many people in the world, that's the cause of our economic problems. Um, the Nazis, they viewed, uh, you know, the people that they exterminated, the first people they exterminated were disabled people. And they put up posters everywhere calling them useless eaters. Right. And that is how I think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and a lot of the wealthy people uh, in, in the government of the United States, they view the majority of humanity as useless eaters. Uh, and they, they think that, you know, with the computer revolution, we don't need these people to work in factories anymore. We don't have a place for them. And they're having too many babies and they're they, they're not making wise, you know, family planning decisions. And, uh, you know, we just got to starve them out. Right. That's the way we're going to solve these problems. Call the herd. Call the herd is what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. And so Joe Biden starving Afghanistan. And uh, and look, it's not just that these latest sanctions on Russia. And this is important. No one's talking about this. Russians are talking about it. Brazil is talking about it. Right? People mm -hmm. in Africa are talking about it. American media is not mentioning it at all. They just put a huge tariff on Russian fertilizer. Russia is the main producer of fertilizer in the world. Mm -hmm. Brazil is not going to get fertilizer to fertilize their crops. African countries are not going to get fertilizer to fertilize their crops. And there's already malnutrition going on all across the world because of the pandemic and supply chain issues. And if, if come this spring, a lot of countries don't get their Russian fertilizer delivered and those crops don't get fertilized, the food supply in the world is going to drastically decrease because of these new sanctions on Russia. There is going to be a crisis of malnutrition. Um, and I think Joe Biden seems to be OK with that. He's the starvation president. And it's not just for people around the world. It's for us Americans. The, the price of food is skyrocketing right now. And mm -hmm. as the president, he has the power to do what Richard Nixon did and sign a price freeze, right? That's what it Richard Nixon does. did, 90 days. The president has the ability, with the stroke of a pen, he could make the price of, of, of eggs and milk and bread stop going up, just with a stroke of a pen. That's all he would have to do. He's not mm -hmm. doing that. Why is he not doing that? Well, I think he thinks a lot of Americans are useless eaters also, because when it really gets down to it, most of America is not New York City and it's not Los Angeles. And most of America still believes in economic growth. Most of America still has a more or less industrial view. And that a lot of the way the American economy used to work, if you go back to the 50s when it was booming, was more in line with what they're doing in Russia and China. It was more of a continentalist view, right? And this right. Atlanticism, I talk about the Atlanticist pathology, this idea that we can just dominate global trade and keep the world poor, uh, that has kind of taken over the United States in the last several decades. And I think when it gets down to it, a lot of average Americans are pretty tired of this also. And a lot of Trump's rhetoric about America first and all of that, a lot of it was kind of appealing to this feeling that our leaders are more concerned about dominating the world 
than they are about making a better life over here. Very good. Very, very well put. And, you know, it makes me um, wonder about the, the coming elections, of course, how this is all going to play out. I mean, I have a theory, but um, I don't think that the people I mean, they've had the Democrats have had the, the House, Senate and the White House and have been unable to pass any domestic legislation. And then, of course, we have a war. And what has that done? Well, first of all, um, I saw someone like put a meme up and said that that Vladimir Putin killed COVID. But it was a joke. But it's kind of true that all of a sudden there's no COVID. Like that's not even a discussion anymore. And people are like the mask mandates have lifted. And and then, you know, so I feel like people are getting it that we're just manipulated by the administration weaponizing the media. And at some point that has to change. The propaganda has become like with social media, um, giants censoring and, and manipulating and kind of, you know, putting people's minds in, in a certain group thing. Um, you know, you're seeing that, um, you know, and going back to your Marxist roots, you know, my, my mother was Marxist and, um, I actually was, I remember as a, as a young child, um, I, was on a farm in Wisconsin, I brought my Karl Marx book to school and I was talking to people about it. And there were some kids, even though I had Catholic background, but there were kids that were Lutheran and Catholic. And I said, you know, there are people who think that there is no God and talked about that. Anyway, the school called my, my mother and um, they had to have a meeting. I wasn't allowed to bring my Karl Marx book anymore. And it was my version. And you can imagine at 10 years old at interpreting that. So you can imagine what I was saying, but, um, but I was given a, an orange sash with a, with a, you know, it was, I became a safety patrol on the bus. So they gave me a badge with an orange and I get to boss everyone around. So that's how they deflected my energy. Authoritarian tendencies, I guess. Right. <laughs> so I became a fascist right away. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You give someone a badge and like power, but anyway, going back to what you're saying, you know, I think that there's a lot in the educational system with Americans where we're not taught different views. I was taught different views because my, you know, I came from a family of artists and people that were interested in geopolitics and have lived all over the world. And so I was exposed to, to different ideas and thoughts, but most Americans are not. And in our school system, it's very rigid and people don't realize that our school of thought is very rigid and what we're supposed to think about things. Sure. And I mean, there's been a weird flip um, because mm -hmm. what you're describing is very real. And I, I've said this many times and in recent interviews, but it keeps coming up. But I have to keep saying it because I, I keep remembering how true this is. My whole childhood, everyone said to me, my aunts, my uncles, my mom, my dad, mm -hmm. my cousins, you're going to love college, Caleb. Oh, you're going to love college. <laughs> college is going to be so amazing. You're a college type guy. You're always you know, questioning <laughs> things and Reading, yeah. reading obscure books, you're going to love college. I got to college and I hated college. I was yes. miserable in college. And that's because academic institutions in the United States have greatly changed. During mm -hmm. the Cold War, you know, it was your average middle American folks were like, kill the Russians. I hate the communists, yeah. you know, support our troops. And it was in the colleges that you got people that said, well, maybe there's another side to the story. And the Nicaraguans have their perspective. And maybe these Contras that Reagan is arming are not so good. And people went to college to learn to see shades of gray and, and such. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was a yeah. feeling that that wasn't safe for average Americans. But it was mm -hmm. in the college that you had to introduce people to think at kind of a higher level. That was the Cold mm -hmm. War normal. But the Cold War yeah. is long over. The U.S. economy has long collapsed. 
Now it's average Americans who may not be able to find Ukraine on a map. And they're like, what does Ukraine have to do with me? I want a job. I want schools. Why is the government concerned about that? Why is my brother in the military being sent to Eastern Europe? You know, (laughs) you know, that's average working class Americans are questioning things. And that's what a lot of this anti-vax stuff is about, mind you, is that average Americans are suffering and open to anti-imperialist perspectives. But Mm -hmm. college has become the opposite of what it used to be. College Mm -hmm. is now where you get vetted. To make sure that, you know, if you're going to get a place in this shrinking American middle class, you better be ideologically pure, you know, in so-called totalitarian states, you know, in in China, in order to get a certain place in the government to get high up a government job, you have to be a member of the Communist Party. You have to agree with them in Iran in order to to get, you know, high enough up in the government. You have to they have to they they will make sure you're a good Muslim and you follow their code. And that's what our American institutions are, uh, our Ivy League schools. But most, you know, most academic, you know, universities, colleges have become this place where you're given the party line and you're there to make sure that you know exactly why Putin is an evil dictator and why China is oppressing those Uyghurs. And you learn to just vomit back exactly what you want. And if you can do a good enough job of that, you can get an A plus and you can get, you know, and I learned this. I observed this because when I worked in the U.N. press corps, I used to work with Press TV, the TV network from Iran. And I was in the U.N. press office. And there's not very many reporters there. The U.N. press office, I mean, except for like in September when all the leaders are there. But for the most part, you know, there's not very many pe- reporters there. So I was talking to the reporters from ABC and NBC and Fox. And these people had gone to Harvard and they'd gone to Yale. They were the top of their school, their classes in journalism. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in theory, these should be like the smartest people ever, right? Mm-hmm. And I was talking to UN reporters from major networks, top schools, and I would talk to them. And the, the war in Syria was going on. They had no idea that there was another side to it. And I would tell them what we were reporting on press TV about the rebels and the beheadings. Right. Right. And they would, really? I've never. And I'm thinking, how can you be so smart? But that's what being smart is, is you learn. And, to then, and then if you try to yeah. present that side, you're called an assadist or like, yeah. because I, I try to present a different side in some of my, you know, as you know, um, I'm called a, a, a pro-Putin or a Putin apologist. I don't, you know, and I just kind of say, I don't care. Tell me what you want, but I'm trying to give you another perspective. We can't right. just look through a Western lens. You need, and, and, you know, I think it's really important I, and I want to bring this back because you said something earlier that's so key. No one's listening to Russia. We have leaders right now that are deciding our collective fate. And what I have a problem with most of all is that they they haven't been listening. They haven't been listening since before 2014. For whatever reason, and I think it's mostly economic, but not ideological, but it's it's really... It's really profound because we could be headed towards a world war if we don't stop the rhetoric and and start diplomatic inroads. And do you think I'm being too dramatic by saying that? Or what is your observation on the world stage right now where we're at? Tara, I think you're absolutely right that we are in a really dangerous situation. People have no idea how dangerous it really is. Um, and, and we are being fed this very one-sided, you know, almost, uh, what do they call it? Uh, 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 you know, melodramatic version of events where Putin is just the bad guy. I mean, Mm -hmm. we are getting this, this version of events that is very, very one-sided and they're doing Mm -hmm. things that will, will have, you know, damage done. I mean, you know, destroying these Russian tea houses, banning Anastasia from ABC, you know, Disney channel. I mean, I mean, this kind of thing, you know, Russians don't forget that. Right. And I mean, this could do a lot of damage in the long term. But I want to commend you for your bravery, because what what you obviously have been through uh, Mm -hmm. and 
you know, and, and daring to stand up and call out Joe Biden for what he is and for what he did to you, but also then daring to take a stance in international politics in addition to that, which is very, very risky. Uh, you really, you are one of the bravest people I've ever seen in my life. And oh, I, I just, thank you. I just admire you. I really have great thank admiration for you. And, you know, I get a lot of harassment on the internet and stuff, nothing compared to what you've faced. Um, and, yes. and I want to commend you because you have exposed how hypocritical these people, these people were screaming me too, me too, me too. And, and you ended the me too movement essentially, because, uh, you, you know, you, you showed that, that these crimes that me too is all about also apply to one of their guys. And so it fell apart, you know, and yeah, by well, that, as yeah. I said, you know, it's like, it, it's not war or rape. If it's an elite Democrat, apparently, according to, to the public right now, um, it's kind of, thank you for your admiration. I admire you too. I, I've, I've liked your, I like your work. I've liked your, you know, and read a lot of your work, shared your videos that you've done on the academic part, especially the academic part and historical context. I think it's important. And, you know, my philosophy was, Caleb, like, I'm not scared of anything. I've had so much come at me. It's, it's been a machine that's come at me that I've just sort of, you know, created a psychological structure where I'm okay. But what I would say is that I have this small platform and I was chose how to use it. So I help survivors, other survivors. And then I decided, because I felt very passionately about Russophobia for, for personal reasons, um, that I wanted to make a stand about this. And I've always had an interest in geopolitics and that's why I was originally in politics um, when I worked. So one of the things that's been kind of hard is with some of these journalists that come at me, like Edward Isaac Dovier or the political reporter, you see them on my thing. They just make personal attacks. Even Kevin Rothrock made a personal attack. You're crazy, you're this. But they don't engage me in an intellectual way. They don't debate. And I try to debate them. I say, well, debate me. I'll talk to you about geopolitics. I know history. I'm a nerd. Like I'm, you know, take, call me out and they won't do it. They'll just say things like you're lying and you're crazy and that's it. And just kind of like throw up their little misogyny. But I really truly, truly believe that we just have to keep being that voice for another perspective because I believe that, and this might be controversial, but this is what I believe that the world is shifting East that innovation and the future is going to be towards the East. And I think that the West is showing signs of being a dying empire. So we can either integrate and all become, you know, partners or the West will be left behind. And I think that's where we're at. I, I would absolutely agree. You know, Rosa Luxemburg at the time of World War One. Uh, she said it wasn't, a, you know, inevitable that we would move towards socialism or some higher form of civilization. She said it was a question of socialism or barbarism. And she talked about how when the Roman Empire fell, you didn't get something better than the Roman Empire on top of it. You got, you know, the population of Europe, you know, didn't return to what it was for another 1100 years. Uh, the life expectancy of human beings greatly went down, uh, you know, conditions all across Europe deteriorated because the Roman Empire had fallen. It had just gotten worse and worse and it finally collapsed. And, uh, you know, that may be what we're headed for in the United States, and I really hope not. And that's why I call myself an American patriot, um, as, as weird as that might sound. I am an American patriot because I want Americans to know I don't want that to happen. I do love my country. I love my fellow Americans. we're speaking up, exactly, because we do care. I mean, if we didn't care, we wouldn't speak up. We'd let it go, right? Yeah. Exactly. And that there's a lot of pessimism these days. We live in such a pessimistic age 
But mm-hmm. what we need now is is optimism. And we need to say that, look, there is a beautiful country here of people who believe in growth, of people who want to make a better life. And those people need to be represented. And that these war makers, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Victoria Nuland, they don't speak for average Americans. And so that's why I'm patriotic. That's why I'm a populist. That's why I'm a socialist. So that's kind of where I'm at politically. And, uh, you know, I, I'm open to hearing different perspectives and learning about it. And I, I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. It's a real honor for me. Thank you. And then um, how can my listeners find your work going forward? Well, my main uh, platform now is YouTube. Uh, you know, I'm Caleb Maupin. I'm also on Rockfin, Caleb Maupin, C-A-L-E-B-M-A-U-P-I-N. Um, and I run a think tank called the Center for Political Innovation, uh, which is, you know, we're having conferences around the country, uh, cpiusa.org. Um, so if you're interested in hearing, you know, this kind of perspective, uh, you know, you can check out the Center for Political Innovation, cpiusa.org. And you have you have an event coming up. Yes, and you're going to be giving a, uh, a presentation, a video message to it. Uh, that's March 12th in Austin, Texas. We're going to have an event. Um, you know, we're getting a lot of threats, but we're spending a lot of money on security to make sure that it's safe, uh, you know, that we don't have a problem with disruptions or attacks. And it's going to be in Austin, Texas, uh, March 12th. So, it, you know, if you want to hear and hear a lot of different people who, who share this kind of anti-war patriotic perspective, come come to the conference. Well, thanks. And thanks again for taking the time out to speak with me. And um, thank you, all my listeners, for hanging on. And we will um, be back with the politics of survival. And thank you, Caleb.